0: Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Christopher Jason Bell, and this is the Indie Beat Podcast. Just in case you, uh, you know, didn't know, maybe you made a mistake or something, but it's too late now. You have to listen. So, on Indie Beat, we are part of the Playlist Podcast Network, and we focus on independent filmmaking. So we interview writers, directors, actors, programmers, producers. You know, uh, everybody is great. And these are people you may not know, but should know. So thanks again for tuning in. Without further ado, it's time for the interview. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for coming in and listening to your favorite film podcast, Indie Beat. I'm Chris Bell, and here is my friend, Jessica Kingdon. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I'm good, and it's my pleasure. So, Jessica is a filmmaker, she is also a producer, you produce other films, that's correct? Yeah. Okay. Is there something I'm missing? Do you do other things that we would want to talk about in relation to film? Um, not really.
1: I mean, I edit too sometimes, but it's not really anything to talk about.
0: Gotcha. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Um... So I want to start off very generally. What is your background? Like, how did you get into film itself?
1: I was always interested in it, I guess, like, since I was a teenager or whatever. Um, I wanted to be some kind of artist, a writer, photographer, sculptor, um, and film was in one of them, in one of those categories, and um, just throughout my whole life was trying to do that and kind of fell into this over all of the other ones for whatever reason, which I don't really have a great answer. Um, I think probably because part of it is because um, it's easier to see it as a career path over other art forms um, is one reason.
0: I mean, I don't really know anything about like sculpting, but I would imagine You know, like TV is huge. Movies are pretty big. You could probably find something, you know, and this is ignoring a lot of like unpaid uh, PA stuff, of course, which is, you know, not cool. But um, I, I feel like there's probably more of like career or job opportunities in film. TV there than totally
1: there are. It's not like you can find career or job opportunities. to Actually, I guess you sort of can. I have a friend who's, um, he's a visual artist and he tells me about the kind of, it's interesting hearing about the kind of gigs that he gets, like assisting other artists um, or smaller, smaller scale projects of creating um, bodies of work that exist out there. Um, but also it's more of a solitary practice and I'm someone who needs motivation from other people around me as well. Um, and film is obviously super collaborative. And there's a lot at stake, a lot of money involved. Um, so it's harder to kind of just ignore it and let it flounder.
0: So it's like a, a big push to like kind of finish whatever you're doing and finish it well.
1: Totally, yeah. I mean, I also wanted um, to write and... I tried doing that for a while. I mean, I still do, but um, I'm not able to produce in the same amount that I am with film. It just, it, it seems like way too, way too much pressure somehow.
0: Right, like narrative stuff?
1: Mm-hmm. And, and like creative nonfiction as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I always like, I mean, I did that as a kid and uh, then I started to get into filmmaking and it was something I always wanted to do as well, and then I kind of, you know, forgot about that. And now I read stuff, and I'm I'm a much more avid reader than I was, you know, even a couple years ago. And I'm just, I don't know how I could do it. Like, there's, I would never be able to do it.
1: Yeah, it takes enormous amounts of discipline and uh, willingness to suffer on your own, which there's enough of that in being a filmmaker but being a writer is a whole other ball game
0: yeah and my vocabulary sucks as you can see
1: <laughs> I don't have a great vocabulary either um, it's funny like t- today I was working with a translator on on my film and we were looking at a scene that takes place in a textile factory and um, she wouldn't the way that I worked with um, my translators for this is that they translate, like, ten minutes and then we'll look at what they translated together and kind of um, go over what the potential meanings are because there's so many different ways. And she had, like, there were three words um, in that ten minutes she translated that I didn't think they were English words. I thought that, um, because, like, English is her second language, I thought she kind of made them up. And she was like, no, no, I looked in the dictionary, that's what the word is. And... I realized the words were so specific because it's like um, industry jargon, because we're shooting, we're like in a textile factory. And also just because of the paths that she had to take to get to this specific word, she came up with all these words that I had never heard before.
0: (laughs) As I get older, I think about the people around me, like parental figures and stuff who can't spell anymore. And I find myself forgetting words that i should know or like not being able to spell stuff and i'm just like uh,
1: i've always been bad at spelling
0: yeah (laughs) f across the board and did you go to school to study film is that like how you committed to it or
1: well i studied film undergrad um like i did film studies which doesn't really set you up to go and be a filmmaker of course um it helps you think about films and get excited about them but there's no clear path really um i did a ton of internships in film um but it didn't seem like that was really a clear path to be a filmmaker either um so i went to i did my masters at the new school in media studies and they encourage a lot of experimentation there and doing your own kind of small, lower-stakes projects. Um, and I had been doing things like that before that, but it gave me, um, you know, time and space to just, like, take risks and do my own weird projects on the side. And then uh, I was freelancing as a videographer while I was in school. Um And then producing kind of happened by accident because I, um, yeah, it happened in a a sort of lower stakes way where I was in this film collective and we, I had a script and I was like too scared to direct it because I didn't know how to do that. Um, So I just posted saying that I had a script and we needed a director and then of course we needed a producer, but we didn't have that and then I ended up doing it just kind of throwing myself into it. This was like, um, I don't know, eight years ago or something. And um, that's how I produced my first short. And it was really exhilarating and exciting. Um, And I realized that I like doing it and getting things done and um, being on the ground and kind of things like that. This was a narrative short. Um, I mean, now that I've done more and have worked on features, um, I'm not sure, I mean, I do it for a living when I can, but in terms of taking it on as a passion project, um, and kind of a labor of love as a producer, I'm less excited about it now that I'm a little older, uh, cause I, I really, I'm trying to just prioritize my own, my own work as a director. Yeah, I think a lot of it was a confidence too thing, too, not um, taking myself seriously as a filmmaker or thinking that I could actually direct something. And so feeling like the only way in would be taking on, you know, producing.
0: And how did it feel to kind of have something you wrote? Because you must have had like a vision of it or something. Like, how did it feel to have someone else like kind of apply their vision? <laughs>
1: Well, I actually co-wrote the script with someone, so it wasn't mine. So it didn't feel that precious to me. And I don't want to say at the end I felt like, oh, I could have done that because I, I couldn't have. I needed to watch someone else do it. But I made two narrative shorts after that that had like a script that I wrote and I directed them. Um, and yeah, I it would be weird to like write that and have someone else direct it. I feel like that's more of a Hollywood thing where you can separate it out like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes with like producing and and writing. Why I kind of talk to a lot of writer directors who like probably end up producing their own stuff too is that there's you, there's so few resources that it's like, well, you know, you're kind of cobbling everything together, so you're going to have all these different hats. It just kind of happens like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um I mean at this at the low budget level, you have to also be a producer. And it's it's frustrating working with directors who don't who are not also producer-minded if you're working in a low-budget realm because then they they don't understand that they have to take on a lot of those roles themselves.
0: Yeah, so I didn't really know that you did uh, a couple narrative films because I primarily know your documentary work.
1: Yeah, my narrative work isn't as popular, <laughs> which is part of why... Um, you know, part of why I'm doing the documentary work. Not not to say that it's I care about it less. I mean, if anything, now I care about it more. But I would say I cared about them equally. Um, and it just so happened that the documentary work got more response.
0: Do you want to focus more on narrative stuff, like, ultimately?
1: No, not, not really. I th- there's so many things out, so many stories out there to be told. Or not even stories, but there's just so many things to make documentaries about. Um, I feel like I, I think I might be able to do that better, at at least at this junction in my life, um, through documentary than narrative filmmaking.
0: I mean, you talk about like kind of the stakes of having to finish something and documentaries could take a lot longer, but I do feel like they're a bit easier just to start than a narrative film.
1: No, that's true. There's a few things that are motivating me to finish this first feature film um, pretty quickly and just to get the work out there.
0: Okay, one is off the record and can't talk about that, can't have it recorded. This is a smooth post-production edit, pretty cool, and now we're talking...
1: The other thing is just practical, like if I want to have kids and have a family, I'd you know, want to finish this first one, like, in the next few years so that I could do that. Um, and then, you know, of course, I just want to put work out there and and finish it. After Commodity City, I made um, another short, and I have another short right now that we're editing. So, um, yeah, I want to keep making work and not have it hanging over my head.
0: Yeah, it does get feel kind of weird um the way that you have to put out movies or the way we're like kind of told we we have to and we see how they're being done where it's like you can only do if if you it you know you have a few films that you're doing currently and a couple of them are like at least close to completion but you can't put them out at the same time, you know. So it's weird to have these like things hang over your head. You feel like you can't do these even these these parts of your life, like you talked about having a family and stuff like that, if you have all these films like in the back burner, you know, you feel like you have to get them out there before, like uh-huh. it kind of holds up your entire life. It's really strange.
1: It is, especially as a female, um, you know, a lot of people when they're in their thirties, if they want to have kids, they're thinking about how they can balance that with making documentaries or narrative films at the same time.
0: Is that something that like you're thinking about now like considering
1: yeah definitely because this film to me that I'm doing right now um takes priority over everything and it's kind of a long-term commitment at least for the next few years so it um you know I've made that choice to dedicate like the next few years of my life to doing this and putting off Having kids, or whatever the thing is that people do later when they're older. <laughs> it's weird because I feel like the age where I have to be thinking about those things happened way faster than I thought it would. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm on Instagram, I'm getting ads to freeze my eggs all the time, and then, like, my family is pressuring me, and some friends, too, think it's a good idea, so. You know, it's everyone my age in their thirties um, having these kinds of thoughts and discussions, and it just comes up really fast on you.
0: It's and it's it's frustrating too because it it kind of happens when like it seems like things are finally starting to go well.
1: Totally. Yeah. Um. I don't know. What about? Do you guys think about that? I mean, you're getting married soon.
0: We actually we already got married. Um, uh, oh,
1: sorry. Yeah, you yeah. got married. Yeah. Uh,
0: but no, I mean, we're gonna end up. Like getting a house and stuff, which is like phew, huge amount of money, which we've been able to save like a good amount. But it's also yeah. like my savings, whatever like the little I could ever have, we usually went to films. And now it's like, oh, that can't happen for a while, so mm. I yeah. Have to. A lot.
1: I mean, a lot of it's just about prioritizing in your life what what the most important thing is for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I used to think that there was. Uh, a rush to kind of, like, get things out, and they had to hit a certain way. Um, And that's not to think... I don't think that in kind of, like, a lesser way or something like that, but I'm just, like... I don't know. I mean, there's, like, a hustle that I'm, like, not super into anymore, and uh, I just kind of get pleasure out of making a film and the process of it. And that can take... However long it takes, and that doesn't have to be, like, uh, I don't know. I'm not looking to, like, it'd be I'm cool. Yeah, I, I'm not looking to, like, necessarily hit and get a, uh, a TV series or something. If it happens, that's cool, but I'm not, like, it's kind of intangible to me. So I don't want to, like, stress my myself out and, like, hurt everybody around <laughs> me just to, like, get this thing, which I don't even know how to get. Like and it's career, like, even so. if
1: you do get to that point where you get the thing that you're trying to get, is that even going to make you happy?
0: Yeah. I mean, the more people I talk to, it's just like, it never seems like anything satisfying.
1: Totally. Yeah. So you get sort of jaded by it. Yeah. So through this process, I'm, I keep reminding myself the whole reason why I'm doing it, which is about the work itself, rather than kind of climbing this ladder of feeling like you've made it somewhere.
0: I mean, I mean that's the thing. There are, there are things that other people I know, it's like, man, I wish that happened to me or my film. Not in place of them, but it's like, ooh, I would have loved that. But they have their own things where it's like, ooh, I wish this... It's kind of never-ending.
1: Completely. It's such a... I mean, it's, it's weird because it's like we're in, on one hand, a very supportive industry, but on the other hand, it also feels very competitive. People are waiting for this on the same grant cycles and, you know... One person gets it and the other person doesn't. And um, it's hard. Like you always have to be reminding yourself to instead of, you know, feeling bad about yourself, feeling happy for the other person.
0: The, The competition makes sense in the way that you said it. But at the same time, it's just like, well, what does my film have to do with this person? They're totally different. You know, exactly. We're just trying to get the same slot. But it's like.
1: You know, completely different, yeah. Yeah,
0: like stylistically, it's not even like the same thing. So,
1: right.
0: you know, it kind of falls apart when you think about it, but it's it's right. a lot easier to just focus on something negative, you know. So Commodity City was the first thing I saw of yours.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, loved it. Can you briefly tell the audience what it's about and what made you want to do it?
1: Yeah, it's a short observational documentary that takes place in the largest wholesale mall in the world, which is in Yiwu, China. Um, and it's a, it's a wholesale mall where you can buy um, cheap made-in-China goods in bulk. And it's where most of the products from dollar stores and other places like that come from. Um, so I had read about it. Um, I think there was like a, a series of photographs in the New Yorker or something that I saw. And that I, I just got really interested in the place. And thinking about where all of these cheap disposable goods come from. And I wanted to... I mean, I always wanted to make um, documentaries. And I had made some other shorts before in this style. Of this kind of strictly observational manner. Um, And I thought this would be a great place to do that. So we kind of just went and did it. Without... um, We didn't have funding or anything. It was, like, a very small, low-budget kind of thing. I ended up working on it for a really long time, though. I ended up working on it, obviously not full-time, but almost for two years.
0: And what does that mean, working on it?
1: Uh, Workshopping it, editing it, figuring out what it's really about, that whole process.
0: When you say workshopping it, does that mean, like, you had shot everything already?
1: I did the uh, Union Docs residency, um, and when I did that, I hadn't shot everything. I had shot half of it, and then I did uh, this lab at DC TV, and then I did the Points North residency, and when I had done those, I had shot everything already. But, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I did three labs or workshops in order to really see it through. Yeah, there was a lot of... Um, painstaking time and deliberation that went into it I think I was also trying to understand what it was that I was doing as well
0: yeah that's tough and there's no like you can't do that quickly
1: you can't I mean I'm hoping this feature is going to be much quicker and I can just um now that I've done it with a short and then another short that's coming out soon um that it'll be a little bit easier for me
0: having seen all of them, you know, they're definitely related. It definitely feels like you're building this, like, body of shorts that are different, but, like, they're tackling similar things in, like, a kind of macro sense, so.
1: Yeah. I, I said routine island, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that one also had a weird life cycle where um, I made it and then I submitted it to all these film festivals and it didn't get in anywhere. And this was right after Commodity City, which had played at way more festivals than I expected. Um, so I thought, great, you know, it's going to keep going like this. And of course it didn't at all. Um, and then uh, I don't know if we can like say it yet, um, but I think I told you that it's going to be on the eye slicer. Um, but after we got a small grant from them, then I we re-edited it. And then that's kind of... It in its current form now.
0: That's kind of interesting um, because I feel like the perception is you have one film and it does really well and you're very happy, but that means everything you do after that is going to do, like, is going to play everywhere. Because mm-hmm. you played a lot of places and w- was your mentality the same?
1: Was my mentality the same after when I. Uh, was submitting routine island to places. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I it would I kind of loved that it happened to me because after this enormous success I had, I then had this enormous failure, and I feel like it was such a good life lesson, just not to take anything for granted, to know that nothing is ever sure and just to ex- and to, you know, accept failure as a part of life and to ke- just keep going. Um and I I remember thinking that that I thought after Commodity City that would be the best thing that I ever made and that I wouldn't um make anything ever again or be able to do what I'm doing now and I was like kind of disappointed but I was sort of accepting it a little bit
0: you seem pretty zen about it
1: yeah I guess I mean of course it's like so it was so disappointing while it was happening and of course now I'm like it's great because something is happening to it
0: I don't mean to dwell too much on that. Um, Trying to, like, I I like to have, like, an honest conversation on the show. And as I said before, it's really great. Routine Island, everyone's going to be able to see it at some point very soon.
1: No, I I love talking about failures. I feel like we don't talk about it enough. And, um, you know, I think... Not, like, trying things out and not being afraid to fail is very important. I mean, even just making this feature, I'm making it with the thought in mind that it could also... I mean, not that Routine Island failed, but it could... There's a chance that it could not go anywhere, and that's fine.
0: Yeah, because, as we said before, the work is what matters. Mm hmm I really wish you said that along with me. Even though it would have made oh. no sense, like, there's no way you would have known to say that. Next time, I'm gonna edit it. I'm gonna, I'm I'll gonna get, get you added and cut all this out. Um, what was it like to get permission to shoot these documentaries? Um. Oh,
1: for a second, I thought you meant permission, like from the man or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? How everyone says, "Don't wait for someone to give you permission to make your film." Just don't <laughs> yeah. let <them> make it. <laughs> and I was ready to give you this poignant answer, and then I remember, and then I realized you meant literally. Like, how did people let me, um, film?
0: You can give both answers.
1: Well, okay, I'll answer your actual question first. So, I mean, with each thing, it's different. For Commodity City, um. There's no... It it wasn't that hard. We just had to ask people if they were okay with it, of course. And, um... They were. You know, it's... We're shooting businesses. We're shooting things that people want publicized because they're selling things in this mall. And so there's nothing to hide. It's not like we're shooting sensitive, um... Anything sensitive. And with Routine Island, um... Same thing it's, su- it's surprising the amount of people that will say yes I, I think I will say I um, it was an interesting thing with commodity city, learning just how the percentage of people that will allow you a random stranger to film them if you ask. and of course, a lot of people will say no, but you just have to keep asking.
0: And what is your relationship with uh, China? Had you been there before prior to commodity City?
1: Um, I had been there as a tourist many years ago. My mom is Chinese, but we don't have any family there, and I don't speak Chinese. So it had been um, kind of a place I was fascinated by as an American tourist, but who's also partly Chinese and has some sort of heritage connection to, but abstractly, not concretely. Um, so yeah, go. I mean, going there and and navigating it is is sort of the same as um, going to any country that I didn't know that well. Um, but I kind of love that, you know, just being thrown into it.
0: Yeah, you definitely see it in a in a different way. Whereas, you know, there's tons of interesting things around us, but we're just not like it's just so familiar and kind of like. I don't know, I, we don't see it, and I'm not trying to, like, otherize, you know, everywhere else, but, you know, the place I'm sitting in right now, but, uh, you know, right. I think there's some truth to that.
1: Totally, I mean, and it's something I think about a lot from my my American perspective, going to China and making films about it as an outsider, um, even though I am part Chinese, I, I don't count as a, I'm certainly not a Chinese national, um... So there is some sort of strange voyeurism, forces of voyeurism working in what I'm doing. And I try to be really conscious of that. And um, yeah, just bring these questions up that I'm grappling with to myself.
0: Yeah, I, as I was watching them, I was kind of wondering about that kind of aspect of it. But I noticed the things that you were, were shooting... You were actually showing um exploitation itself of human labor of uh nature, you know all these things you were you're basically like you're shooting capitalism, you know uh-huh. so you're shooting exploitation,
1: yeah, and I mean, I think I'm also shooting I'm shooting that, but I'm also shooting these real human moments that could be anywhere. And I think that's partially the nature of observational filmmaking where it can seem like you're kind of gawking at something. Um, But yeah, I don't have a great response for it. There are a lot of, um, when I show the film to, and my new film to Chinese nationals, Chinese citizens, um, oftentimes they're seeing things that, in a new way that they've never seen themselves in China as well. Um, But I hope to be able to take that same style and do it in America or a place that I'm familiar with. Like, I'm hoping that it's not a product of going to another country um, and being an outsider. It's just the type of filmmaking aesthetic
0: Right, right. And you are also shooting global things, like global phenomenons. So it's not, like, particular to this one country.
1: Right. It just so happens that at this time in history, this one country exemplifies a lot of extreme things about capitalism.
0: And that is the main question is, like, what... I I guess... You know, bluntly, like, why is this the topic you are uh, exploring in, in these works?
1: Yeah, it's hard to really put into words. There wasn't quite a conscious decision to go in and try to make a film about global capitalism or human exploitation or labor or environmental damage, Um it was more like the news stories that I was drawn to and that I was reading about, um, but also being curious about filming in this kind of curious, meandering way and wondering if I could make something that was marrying both um, both concerns.
0: For me, when I saw the film, it was just like, oh my God, this is perfect. Everything just clicks. Everything clicked for me. Everything was just like I love it aesthetically, what it's about is, you know, something I love and I want you mean out in there.
1: Commodity city?
0: I mean everything, but yeah, like Commodity City uh Or
1: in the media sample.
0: Uh both. I mean I'm talking about like Commodity City in specific yeah. because that was yeah. my I met you first and then I didn't right. like we hung out and then I Oh that's right. I didn't get to see your film at the festival because I missed it. Yeah. I came in late. Um, Yeah, I
1: remember that.
0: But yeah, it just seemed like the perfect marriage of just, like, an important subject done in a kind of, like, subtle and also very pointed way in aesthetics that were just extremely uh, adventurous and pleasing to somebody who likes that kind of stuff, but also, like, not really off-pitting for someone who... Uh, doesn't particularly like experimental or, or slow things.
1: That's a ni- that's a really nice way of phrasing it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you answer it much better than I do. Um, but I mean, you're also touching on something where I'm trying to make work that is kind of on the cusp of for a more adventurous audience and for a more for an audience that um, is more used to kind of mainstream entertainment. So something that straddles both of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a smart move. It's like you're not really alienating... Uh, you're doing a movie about alienation while not alienating anybody in the audience. Uh, mm. Hey, you know, why not? Yeah. Get those eyeballs on them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also because of my own um, patience, my own lack of patience, rather. I um, I mean, I lo- also love experimental work that is challenging, but... Um, I, I'm I'm not. I don't have the kind of patience that some people do, so I'm sort of like right in the middle.
0: I have to be in a very specific mood, and the uh, way I see experimental work has to be very specific. Like it's it's not like laying down where you would put on something stupid on Netflix. It it has to be like a lot of things have to line up for
1: yeah. me to do I t- that. I like to to be alone.
0: Yeah. Oh, certainly, yeah. It's it's just like I'm not gonna watch anything experimental with somebody else who might not like who even, or even like with
1: people who appreciate it, it's still hard for me. I need to be in this kind of quiet headspace by myself.
0: Yeah. Even someone who's like ninety nine percent sure they know vaguely what they're gonna get, it's kinda just like it it's very solo.
1: Yes. Kind of yes, thing. very solo.
0: Um And what was uh, your festival experience like? Because, you know, uh, I'm glad to have you on, and I I really like your work, but I don't really see a lot of it, like the kind of stuff you're doing at most um, festivals and stuff like that.
1: I mean, I guess people either like it or they don't like it, which makes it easier for me in some ways not to take things personally because it is the kind of work that people will automatically categorizes um you know oh it's funny a lot of people call it wordless or a film with no dialogue, which isn't true there's dialogue in it it's just people register it that way for some reason, same with my feature um and yeah so it's it's people it's the type of work that either people like or they don't and but surprisingly, actually at festivals people responded really well to it, and I think part of it is because. Um, like we had said, the, an audience who's less adventurous is will is somehow more um, open to it as well. I think because there are these like little entertaining tidbits you can take out of it.
0: What's it like being there and not speaking the language?
1: Um, it's it's pretty frustrating because uh, I mean. I want to put people at ease, and I want to communicate, and I want to understand, um, and I have to rely on somebody else. So, I wish I could do it myself, but, um, you know, you can't. You just have to kind of give up control and allow somebody else to just take over and speak for you. Um, I've sat through some long dinners, where, for, like, two-hour dinners, um, in China, where, like, the factory bosses will take us out, and, like, we just don't understand anything, and just have to sit there and nod and smile. So it's pretty it's pretty frustrating. Um, you know, but it's obviously much, much easier if we have a translator with us. I mean, now that we have, like, a little bit more of a budget, um we're going to always have a translator with us.
0: I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, but have you noticed a difference in terms of how the film, like what the film, what the footage ends up being like when you have a translator versus when you're kind of just like unable to communicate with your subjects?
1: There's so many factors involved in what kind of, what the footage is like that we get. And, um, the quality of the footage doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, having a translator or not, it's more like how easy it makes our lives for us and what we have access to. Because sometimes if we don't have a translator or, so I have two producers, Nate and Kira, and Kira speaks Mandarin, but if she's not with us and it's just me and Nate and we don't have a translator, um... That oftentimes, like, either we just won't be able to get the access or if we do, while we're there, um, it just makes it logistically much harder. And we get lost a lot. (laughs) There are times that I've been afraid, certainly. Uh, Being an American citizen and having that advantage is helpful because I know, well, A we're not doing anything that's explicitly about human rights in China or environmental activism. Um, So the chances of our being arrested or detained are lower. But we've been in some situations that have been scary. Um, But I'm hoping that the worst thing that would happen is that we get kicked out of China. And like that would really suck because then we couldn't finish making the film the way we are um but yeah I mean there are some times where it's kind of like we're in the middle of nowhere and we don't know what's going on um but that's kind of part of the fun of it
0: yeah I mean like the next question is like how do you how do you deal with that like do you channel that into the work somehow
1: I don't know I see it as kind of like a free fall so sometimes it feels like I'm so far in over my head that I just kind of have to keep going and see what happens. And I think also another advantage I have is not knowing that much. And so sometimes if you don't know that much, you can just wander into some crazy situations. The, you know, the whole thing about beginner's mindset or, um, having your being naive help you throughout a process because you don't realize how challenging it's going to be or what the risks are i mean of course we try to keep in mind the risks but sometimes just not knowing what you're up against is helpful
0: right man this sounds so exhausting like when you get home what happens
1: oh my god it, the, it's just jet lag that's terrible um but it's true, coming home, like you feel like you've just come back from another planet. Not because of China, necessarily, but also because of the places in China that we're shooting that are um, so kind of random. And even though they're not random, they're so connected to um, the whole modern world. But they seem random, like at the end of the earth kind of thing. And so coming home is kind of a culture shock. And then just the jet lag is terrible. It takes me like two weeks to recover. Yeah. It was. It can be weirdly depressing. I mean, some people can do it. And they go, like um, my producer, Kira, she travels. She's in China like at least half the year. But like not just six months out of the year, like on and off. Throughout the year, which is crazy to me. I think she just is like really good at adjusting. But for me, I need, especially coming back, I need some weeks to um, adjust.
0: When when you're doing these things, are you kind of looking to other filmmakers or artists or anything to kind of fuel you and, and kind of inspire, kind of shape what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, at first I was... Um, and now that I'm in the middle of shooting, um, less so. I mean, I'm still watching a lot of documentaries, but I feel more inspired by the content of what I'm shooting, if that makes sense. I think before I was, like, in the process of making things, um watching other people's work would get me more inspired and excited about my own work. Now it just inspires me and excites me in general, but in in terms of, like, my influences now, it's it's just based off of what I'm shooting, which is cool. Um, but in terms of, like, influences or whatever, um, one would be Working Man's Death. Have you seen that movie? Michael Glauger. It is this kind of sparse, observational-style cinematic documentary that takes place all over the world about um, industrial labor in these kind of post-apocalyptic settings. And that was actually one of the films that I saw and made me feel like I could do this current feature, which I'm doing, because the current feature takes place all over China. like It's not set in one location, and there's not one central character throughout. Um, and this film is like that, and that was one of the ones that made me see work out there that didn't have to, um, that could have as a through line a concept rather than, um, a character or a place or a story.
0: Yeah, I'm looking him up now. Um, I'm familiar with uh, Horror's Glory, but I haven't seen Mm -hmm. that.
1: That one's also good.
0: Gotcha. Some
1: people don't like him anymore, though. How come? Because they feel like he's one of those Western exploiters going to these countries and observing people um, and, like, otherizing them. Which maybe I'm doing, but maybe I'm not.
0: I mean, that's the thing. It's, like, it's, you know, if people say that about his work, it's kind of, like, it's fair enough. It's not for me, especially as, like, a Western white dude to, like kind of be like, no, he's not. You know, it's uh, it's not for me to say for anybody else. Um, and uh, I can't even really comment too much because I haven't even seen his movies.
1: I also think there's it's not such a black or white thing. Like, yes, they are, or no, they're not. And it also depends on the audience and how they understand the work.
0: I think, as we said before, you are primarily... At least from my view, you are detailing exploitation. Like that's what is in front of your camera. So, you know, I don't, I don't really see your stuff as being exploitative. Um, but I don't know. It's I guess it's a conversation that people could and should have.
1: And it's interesting you say that it's detailing exploitation because I don't even see it that way. I just even though. You could say that in as much as capitalism in general is just exploit exploitative. Um, but in this film, a lot of the places that we're working that we're, that we're shooting in, the factories and places like that, um, they're not terrible as far as factories go because I mean part of why we're able to get access to them is because they are they have pretty good working conditions there. There's nothing for them to hide. There's nothing um, that would make them look bad. It's just part of what um, global capitalism looks like today. And it's not, um, yeah. And so some people read it that way. But for other people, it's just the reality of their lives. It's in the same way that we're being exploited. It's not that different.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of where my head is at at all times. So, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Somebody... it's all on a, a continuum.
0: Yeah. So somebody wouldn't. And honestly, I do think you know, for many reasons, it's probably better that it is that kind of thing where it's not like, as you said, it's it's not like super black or white. It just it's it's like not the worst kind of um, environment to work in. But the core of it, you know, to me, it's like it's still not good.
1: Right no, exactly, and it's but it's it's interesting because we have this notion in mind that these factories are sweatshops or whatever, but a lot of it is kind of a normal workplace, just like how in the states we have a normal workplace where you're all working towards creating a certain type of product or experience. Um, yeah, so I guess it's just expanding the notion of what exploitation looks like or what's normal for people or what's not normal
0: it ends up being a kind of two-sided thing where it's like hey this is um the conditions are really bad and it's really exploitative and then the flip side ends up being this conservative uh argument where it's like yeah but they make this amount of money and it's way more than they would have made and it's like well that's you know we're not really getting anywhere but thank you for uh Offering that right. little counter argument. So then you lose the kind of, um, the actual reality of it, which is right. like, the conditions are decent, but it's, you know, the underlying thing is still not good. Right. And right. we can show that, um, yeah. I don't know.
1: Exactly. No, that's right. All
0: right. It's been real. Thank you again for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you for it. having me. Of course. Yeah. Um, Where can people see your work?
1: Um, Good question. Uh, I have a website, which is jckbox.com, or you could just Google my name, Jessica Kingdon, and the thing that comes up most would be Commodity City. Um, In a few months from now, you'll be able to see Routine Island online. Um, But I don't know. When do you think you're going to release this
0: podcast? Uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure. So maybe that'll be online too Um, by then, but maybe not.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, Please do check out her work. I recommend it highly, of course. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you again for coming on.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: Peace.